spiritual conversations for the godless. I'm Matthew Blake. And I'm Karen Thurston. Welcome to Heathen. Hi, Heathens. Hi, well, welcome. Heathens. Welcome to a new episode. Um, I'm excited. Are today. you? I'm very excited. Oh, that's good. This is our second conversation today with a, uh, we're calling them sexperts. Um, Congratulations. People- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've arrived. <laughs> people who have something to say about sex as it relates to, uh, or, or at least as it uh, helps folks who come out of like super fundamentalist, conservative places where sex was probably like the most taboo thing. I'm laughing because that sort of boils down to anyone who has anything to say about sex, really. That's like, so true. That's true. Sort of, That's so true. What have you got? Anything? Yeah. Great. You're in. We'll take it. We'll but we've had like some really good yeah, we've had we've, some success. Some we've success. been really lucky with our people, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The last episode is uh, about our last sex episode with Bird Ward is one of the most downloaded <laughs> episodes. Shocking. <laughs> Something about putting toys and butt stuff in the title of your podcast. Weird. Like, like it's like we it, got attention. Yeah, it, it draws the eye. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, folks have downloaded and listened to that one a lot. And Bird has been so awesome. She um, jumped in our heathen huddle. She's in there now taking questions from people if if they have them. Uh, she's been just super accessible to folks. It's been nice. She's meeting with me regularly <laughs> <laughs> to just be my person on this whole topic, which uh, is amazing. Bird, I love you. And it's so great because we discovered on that episode that it's it, our voices are pretty similar, Bird's voice and mine. Oh, really? We yeah. sound pretty similar. Oh, that kind of makes sense. It's yeah. funny now when we, we go off coffee, I notice that we make the same sounds <laughs> a lot. I'm like, oh, we do the same little voices. Oh, yeah. Oh, That's so oh, true. That totally voice especially do. you did. So then you've got two women sitting at a coffee shop talking about orgasms. <laughs> <laughs> so you know life so is fun. fashionable it's great we're really starting something here kids. oh that's great yeah well so in the sex episode series one of the things that we want to do and i'm just noticing that my voice is clipping a little so i don't want to be too loud sorry guys um one of the things that we want to do is have this conversation from all kinds of perspectives yes. right so i'm super excited about today's guest uh, James Johansson, right? Did yes, I say that that's correctly? right. You said that right. Good. <laughs> uh, James, uh, thank you for being on the show. We're really glad that you're here. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, so you and I had coffee a couple weeks ago, and it was like a mind-blowing conversation for me personally. <laughs> um, it's flattering. I, yeah, no, it, it really was. Like by the end of it, I was, I was like... I think I I need I need your professional services. <laughs> help, help. Uh, uh, I need to be a client and um and but you were like no let's let's just be friends instead which I thought was super cool so thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> um uh and thanks for coming on the show to talk about sex and atheism and heathen stuff all kinds of good stuff. We're you guys are a lot of fun so I'm happy to be here. Sweet. So um. I, we always like to start with having uh, our guests introduce themselves so that so that you can kind of own your own story and be who you want to be on this thing. So um, as little or as much as you'd like to say about who you are, would you let folks know? Okay. Yeah. Um, who, so who is James? <laughs> who's James? <laughs> um, well, um, I am someone that uh, wrapped up his education uh, fairly recently ago, like a couple years ago, and I'm going into private practice next year as a sex therapist. Um, I currently have like 
four different supervisors that are like overlooking kind of a lot of what I'm doing professionally and helping me get ready for my independent private practice next Mm. year, um, where I will be tackling a lot of issues related to the LGBT community, Mm. uh, specifically working with couples and individuals that identify as poly or non-monogamous. So that is an underserved demographic that I'm wanting to not only raise a lot of education and awareness on, but help people that are learning to and wanting to navigate those relationship structures. Uh, So, because I don't find that that is uh, a competence that a lot of therapists seem to have. And Mm -hmm. so I want um, to be able to serve that population because it's something I'm very passionate about and and, uh, love doing. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. Man, what a, like calling right Right. (laughs) this is my niche like the polyamory non-monogamy i love it that's so great yeah well i mean and i will be asex certified in the next year which is actually the credit uh, um, accreditation board that is there's only like several hundred i think around 700 actual uh sex therapists in the country so it's actually quite a small niche of people and i would not yeah i never would have known that yeah and the governing board for that is asex so um, and yeah, so I'm really excited to be part of that community mm. and, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot, but a lot, it's a lot of times people take five to six years to yeah. become a sex therapist. And, uh, I've, I've been blowing through it in like, you know, two or three. So, wow. Yeah. Mm. But I've, I've, yeah, I've learned <laughs> a lot and I'm excited to actually, you know, go into private practice next year and help people. That's rad. So, well, and yay for heathen for getting on, on the ground floor of your <laughs> journey. And like yeah. being, uh, I didn't know we were getting someone who was like one of only seven, you know, soon to be one of only 700 <laughs> people in the would. country. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not a, yeah. So I hope that as time goes on, the sex therapist title becomes more protected because a lot of people mm. that aren't actually licensed by ASS, mm-hmm. you, know, sure. you know, use that. Um, and so it can be abused by some people. Yeah. 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 That'll be good to see that like on, on the wall, like when yeah. you go and see your therapist, like know that you're getting. Yeah. So the people listening right now, if you want to see a sex therapist locally, make sure that they're ASEX certified. So. And that's A. A A S E C T. Okay. Gotcha. ASEX. Got it. Yeah. All right. So. That's a good, good tip. Yeah. I would have never hot in tip. a million years known that. Yeah, so right? I kind of dig it. Yeah. I like that. Me neither. Um, okay, well, the podcast is called Heathen, though. So before mm-hmm. we jump into sex talk, uh, can we hear a little bit of your story as it pertains to, and I've, I've heard a, a bit of it already, which is why I am uh, feel okay asking mm-hmm. <laughs> you to go there. You can ask me anything. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's hear. I, I know that you grew up um, in a religious uh, world. So can we hear like kind of where you came from and, and where you're at now, like what that journey has been for you? Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in, you know, the Midwest and my mom wasn't like overly religious or anything, but I was Christian and that's how I was raised. Mm-hmm. And we occasionally went to church. It wasn't like anything <laughs> that was like culturally Christian. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess you could describe me as more of a cultural Christian. At least you, you could have uh, yeah. previously. Um, but, uh, you know, I just remember at, at an early age kind of like questioning because I was struggling with sexual orientation at the time. And I knew at a very young age that I was gay male. Um, but uh, I had a very sincere desire to be a good person. I remember mm. being confronted with that. At, uh, I must have been around like nine or ten thinking, you know, 
if I am gay, if I do have this attraction to other men, um, can I be a good person? And, mm. and how do I do that? What does that look like? And, um, I just remember thinking about that when I was still in the single digits. Right. And then it wasn't until like I became a little bit older in, in, in high school that, um, that I was more comfortable coming out. And one of the reasons why is because I had met, uh, a boy in high school that was actually the track star and <gasps> super hot. And, mm. and he was the first male that I've met that actually did not fit any stereotypes. And I don't know what was going exactly on in my head, but mm. I must've been thinking like that if I was gay, that I somehow needed to be like a stereotype. Like I needed to be more flamboyant. I needed to be mm. more, ex- you know, um, extreme right. in my mannerisms and stuff. And I, I really didn't identify like that. And so it wasn't until I met this guy in high school and who seemingly didn't fit the stereotypes. And he was the first one that said to me, um, I'm gay, but he said it in private. Obviously mm-hmm. he wasn't out at high school and neither was I, but that was enough for me to then be like, Oh, that it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Cause at the time I was kind of like identifying as bisexual mm. and even though bisexual is a thing is and it's actually the largest demographic in the lgbt community there are some boys like me who you know kind of used it as a, as a means of kind of slowly shifting into the identity of being gay yeah. because at the because i wasn't comfortable with myself and um and so after that uh, I kind of hit the ground running because once I knew that, okay, well, I can still be gay and not only be a good person, but not necessarily be um, stereotypical or at least how I saw gay people proceed, you know, in the media. Mm. Um, and and I, I got with faculty at the high school and um, another student named Gina And her and I, along with this faculty member, started actually the first gay-straight alliance in the state of Iowa. Wow. And so this was in, like, 1997-ish, like, around that. It was called Spectrum at Ames High School. That's Mm -hmm. amazing. And and we started that, and I started uh, really caring about politics and advocacy at the time. Um, but I was also very distracted by boys at the time too. And I started going to the college campus and I started going to, uh, Iowa, uh, Iowa state's, uh, LGBT Alliance group and, mm. uh, partially for the education and then partially to meet college guys. And right. so, um, and so that's kind of ever since then I've been really politically minded and, yeah. uh, I, I learned so much from that. And, uh, I think it was around that time too, that, when I start, I remember actually very vividly one of the speakers at um, ISU uh, Alliance Group had said something about, I think she was in a polyamorous um, relationship, and she was talking about um, someone brought up the fact, well, what if the Bible says this and the Bible says that uh, about uh, LGBT people and, and, and about. Uh, how relationships should look essentially. And I remember what she said, does it really matter what the Bible says? Mm. And, and I guess to a Christian, it obviously the answer is yes, but I don't know. It was just something like really, uh, seemingly simple like that, that kind of got me thinking, well, why does it matter? what the Bible says, um, because the Bible says a lot of things about not only condoning slavery, but about, uh, subjugation of women 
And, you know, you can interpret those things a lot of different ways, but I think it's good that Christians have learned to cherry pick those verses over the over time in order to adapt to a more compassionate world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was kind of the first thing in my mind, the, like the earliest memory of me really thinking that it was okay to challenge what the Bible says mm. and being okay with that and knowing that I could still be a good person and challenge what the Bible says. And in fact, challenging what the Bible said probably was more evidence for me being a good person because of kind of how I saw how she was and she was an amazing human being. I I really thought, I just remember that being the person to really blow my mind and Mm. I must have been like 19 years old. So, or no, actually I was like 18 or 17. Yeah. So that kind of got me challenging, uh, religion or at least questioning it. And, um, which ended up being really good for me because, um, I understood that there was an ethical and a moral way of living in the world that didn't require me to adhere to the uh, Abrahamic kind of lens of morality. And uh, I understood that there was alternatives. And I think that was extremely empowering for me. That's so, I mean, because I think you and I are probably pretty close in age. Mm -hmm. um, And it's always interesting to me to hear people's journey like, like what those triggers were for them. Like, when did you feel like, oh, this is a line that I can cross, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to before it was always like the red line, like, do not, you know, do not pass go. Um, cause for me it took so long. Like I was encountering people probably at the same time. Well, no, not in high school. I wasn't, but in, but in college I started encountering people who challenged my worldview mm-hmm. and they were a lot of them. Most of them were still Christians, but just like not the kind of Christianity I grew up in, you know? And, but it still took me just like years, like a decade to mm-hmm. like fully begin to process. Oh, I have, I have some agency over my own body. I have some agency over my own thoughts. Like I don't have to subscribe to this exactly. checklist, um, perfectly 100%. And, and the Bible, the whole inerrancy thing of the Bible that was drilled into me from childhood is actually like, this this very recent very um narrow uh, uh, not narrow well yes narrow but also very like not common like in mm-hmm. the the range of of like christian traditions like the whole inerrancy of scripture is not like a lot of the liturgical traditions like that's just not a thing yeah. uh for them and, and you know for evangelicalism it's like the be all end all especially coming out of the 80s so it just took me such a long time to get to where you were you started going pretty early on. It's always well, and you're not alone in that because oh, yeah. I mean, the oh. vast majority of the people that I work with as, as clients like are struggle with some sort of shame around mm. their identity or, um, something related to their identity, you know, with regards to not knowing that they do have the capacity to challenge these things. Mm. A lot of what I do in therapy, uh, at least partially, um, a large part is myth deconstruction, mm. you know, and understanding, um, you know, where people are getting their information about morality and where people are getting their information about how to uh, navigate the world and do so ethically, you know, and, and do so that respects in, in a respectful way that mm. honors who they are mm. and honors, you know, what they really value. And, uh, and so it's a huge process because you really do have to have a, an incredible amount of strength and courage to be able to challenge institutions that you were raised and groomed 
and socialized mm. to never challenge because mm. to challenge those things puts your sense of morality and your character in question, right? Yeah, and soul. No, yeah exactly. They're, yeah. they're so for eternity, right? right. <laughs> no, no stakes there yeah, at all. Not extreme at all. <laughs> it's fine. <Right? laughs> no big deal, guys. And, but that's part of the psychological control that, yeah. you know, that religion has over people because it is eternity. It is forever. And, you know, we don't much less... I mean, it's hard to even comprehend that. And, and it, for me, I think at, even at a young age, I, I thought... What kind of God would burn me mm. for eternity in this fire and brimstone kind of dimension, if you will, um, for simply critically thinking about the world and simply wanting to navigate the world uh, in such a way that um, that made me happy, but which wasn't doing harm to others, right? Mm-hmm. You know, me being with another man doesn't do harm to anyone, right. but yet, you know talking to you know some deeply religious individuals you would think that it's armageddon right and i actually remember in high school one of the reasons one of the things that initiated my um, desire to start that spectrum group at ames high with gina and the faculty was because um, when i came out i remember uh, going to a counselor at my high school and i was I, i because I was young and I was struggling with it and I think I was looking for adult advice and Mm. I didn't yet feel comfortable going to my mom even though she's amazing but I wasn't comfortable at the time with myself and uh, so I went to this uh, counselor and um, I remember we talked in her office for a little bit and she said I want you to meet someone and um, I think I don't know if it was the next day or whatever but she ended up taking me to this Catholic priest and we sat down in his office, and she uh, and him talked to me and said, you know, if you continue down this path, you're going to go to hell. Oh, wow. God. And I don't know, like, there was something in me at that moment, like this little boy sitting at this desk with this priest and this school counselor. Uh, <laughs> and I remember feeling... I'm and I, I'm grateful that I'm like this, but not everyone is. I remember feeling, looking at these two people and thinking, God, you guys are sleazy. Mm. You know, because most kids, I think, would feel shamed. Right. Yep. Yeah. And But there was something about me that said, you, you guys that. are scumbags. Wow. You know, and, and I got mad and yeah. I didn't. I didn't blow up in the office or anything like that. I just, I listened to what they had to say. And then, you know, I went home and I remember that's where I kind of got angry. I was like, how could people do that? How Mm. could they do that to me? You know, and, and I was vulnerable and she used that vulnerability as an opportunity to recruit me, you know, to her, her faith and her ideological view of the world. And I just remember thinking, and feeling on a very deep level of how wrong that was. And that's kind of gave me that. I mean, I'm glad it happened because it ended up empowering me in such a way that I was a force to be reckoned with in high school. Hmm. And I was very unapologetic for being gay after that. And, um, and that's how it kind of played out. And ever since then I've been, you know, very unapologetic, not only about being gay, but being, um, an atheist humanist and, and having those values. So, 
Mm. I love that. I love it too. Okay, can I tell you a story then? Yeah. About my first counseling experience, yeah. which is like could not be more of a you know inverse of yours. Um, uh, I was in college. I was in my I guess I was no sophomore year of college, <clears throat> and I had made a, a new best friend that year, uh, and it was the first time I'd had like I had a best friend in high school, but. I don't know, it was high school, like, whatever. Your life is just so weird. Um, this is the first time I felt, like, happy and excited about, like, oh, my gosh, like, I have a best friend. I've never had that before. Like, mm-hmm. to this level of, like, we just did everything together. Like, we were known around campus as being, like, because we also played music together, so we'd play out in, in coffee shops and stuff. And um, so we, um, <laughs> anybody who's listening to this, who knows me from back then is going to know exactly who I'm talking about. And <laughs> now, now that's making me feel a little weird because of what I'm about to say, but whatever. Um, <laughs> that was 20 years ago. It's fine. Not, not quite 20. Um, he and I developed a, a system of accountability for one another around masturbation. Mm-hmm. Like we thought that it was a sin to jerk off. Yeah. God kills a kitten. Yeah. Every time ceiling cat watches so you masturbate. Sad. Um, so we had, a like a whole code language that we use to talk to each other so that we could like be in the cafeteria. Wait, what was the code word for no, it was stupid because no one know what it was. I want it being stupid is precisely why I want to know what, what the code word is. Yeah, no, you just we were word. talking about studying. So oh, like we're, okay. we're in college. So we're like, well we can talk like like let's just, we're talking about studying. That's so good. studying meant that if you had like been studying, then you had been like keeping the faith and you know keeping your hand off your. You were doing your homework. <laughs> yes, exactly. You were doing your homework, so that was like studying was the positive, like good, like okay, good. I've been studying. And if if you had to confess, well, I didn't study this week. That meant you jerked off, <laughs> which is like we so we like tell this to each other like over lunch in the cafeteria. Like I didn't study. Which is this funny week. because like I'm sure there's a really high percentage of college students who are indeed choosing to jerk off as opposed to studying. Like that's just a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty normal right? choice to make yeah, in college. Totally. So I don't know. It uh, seems legit. We it was special times. Um. <laughs> anyway, so my friend uh, encouraged me. I, he, this he was uh, was he the first? I guess the second person I came out to because the first person was another a female best friend who I ended up dating later that year. That's a whole other story. <laughs> um, God, that says so much about all kinds of things. Oh, it sure does. Go ahead. Uh, so this friend was the second person I came out to, and he, he was an awesome person, awesome friend, um, especially in the context of how we thought the world worked. So he was like, I'm here for you. Let's figure out what we need to do to help get you where you want to be, which at that time I wanted to be straight. So that was my goal. So I went and saw this, the campus counselor, and that was the first time I'd ever seen a, a therapist. And um, I remember in, like, the second or third session, this topic of masturbation and how my friend and I kept each other accountable <laughs> came up. And um, he, he was so gentle um, with how he tried to introduce to me the idea that maybe it was okay like mm-hmm. that, that masturbating is a normal thing and that maybe like you don't need to feel this giant oppressive weight because I was ball. I'm like crying, you yeah. know, the weight of all my sins kind of coming, rolling off of me. And 
I remember standing up once I realized what he was doing, that he was like trying to absolve me and like give me freedom. And I stood up and was like, oh, you're like, I didn't say this, but in my mind, I'm like, you're a bad counselor. Like you're, <laughs> you're, you're like telling me to sin. You know, you're telling me to go do the bad thing that I'm, I'm telling you I don't want to do. So that was the last time I saw him. Like, mm. I, I think I only went for like three or four sessions and, um, so yeah, where you're like hearing, I, I, like, I just personalities fascinate me. This is amazing yeah, that you hear that okay. from from your counselor, and you're like, oh no, like you're not pulling the wool over my eyes, kind of thing. Whereas yeah. I'm like, well, you probably had it more ingrained in you from oh, a very early age, too. super super. Whereas ingrained, I yeah. was more like culturally, I had yeah. a very open minded mother, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons I'm very close to my mother still mm-hmm. today. You know. Um, I had an amazing relationship with her, and so I felt um, maybe it, in a lot of ways, maybe I was more empowered to do you that. You were rooted in that. But yeah. that, you know, that has a lot to do with not only your upbringing, but um, your, you know, the intensity of your religious mm. upbringing as well. And at what age, you know, you start to hear all this messaging and stuff. So um, my family was always pretty casual about it. So that actually ended up helping me quite a bit, mm. probably. Mm. What I love is in my very sort of broke down pantheistic definition of God that I have floating around because I'm wooey and poetic and spiritually mm. minded and there will always be some sort of God for me. Um, well, I was Buddhist for a long time too. Yeah, like bring school, it on. But, I'm pretty. Yeah. I'm pretty loose about what God is at any given moment, but yeah. I like the idea, so I'm just running with it. Um, but in in that, like that that voice in you, that shortness in you you know, that, that has the strength to say no, you know, to mm-hmm. who hears that. And here's the, here's the no, like I've felt that at different moments in my life where I've been, you know, and in situations where there's some sort of, you're in a conversation with something, you just know that they're wrong, you know, yeah. like you just have this really grounded sureness that they're wrong. Like if I have a definition for the Holy spirit at this moment mm-hmm. in my life, like that's it, That'd that, be that it. sort yeah. of internal rooting and knowing of just like, mm, Nope, actually, no, you're like not this one. I, I'm enough in touch with whatever the truth is in me that like that can't touch me. The shame that you're trying to put on me and the, mm-hmm. the pressure that you're trying to put on me can't touch me, which is the antithesis of what sort of the Holy Spirit was supposed to be, you know, always reinforcing that story you know, always reinforcing the, the rightness of the Bible and the rightness of these things. And mm. So for the Holy Spirit to jump up and say no <laughs> in those contexts, I don't know. I like, mm. I like a rebellious, a rebellious yeah. Sophia wisdom. The ways we all come around to dealing with that shame, that inevitably, like we all grow up feeling shame in some way, shape or form, right. whether it's just like being made fun of for the clothes you wear or, you know, something as unchangeable and as um, inborn as your sexual identity. Um, And actually, I want to take back the word unchangeable because I kind of no longer believe that sexuality is unchangeable. I actually think that it is something that can be much more fluid. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. Are you listening to this? Oh, yeah, I have. Mm. Only the first one. But yeah. We'll talk about that later. Um, Anyway, um, but just how we we all come to terms with our shame. um, I I think like when you start to deconstruct a lot of myths around sex and about how you view sex and about how you view because we're getting a lot of messaging about what to find attractive and how 
uh, you know, and, and what's sexy and, and what's appealing and how mm. we should interact as sexual beings with each other and everything else. And I think that as you deconstruct that, like you do kind of evolve sexually and your sexual identity and who you are as a sexual being is more freed up. You know, and so while some people may interpret that as maybe being more fluid, they may find their mind being more open to things that they didn't consider earlier because yeah. they've done this deconstruction totally. of myths. And um, we really do, like, you know, I started to challenge religion and, and you know, how to be a, a moral person in the world at a very early age because of certain experiences. And I think that the, that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's mm. not just religion we should be challenging. There's a lot of myths mm. that yeah. we need to deconstruct, you know, and so... I feel like that's a really empowering thing to do, and I think that it's a really necessary thing to do if we're going to um, dissect what the truth is, you know, and, and understanding that the truth may be gray, you know, and not necessarily right. this black and white depiction of how we're, you know, trained to think of it. Yeah. But, yeah, I just wanted to throw that no, out. I love that. I love that. <coughs> My brain goes immediately to, like, body image stuff for that. For sure, when it mm. comes to like myths, that like I feel like that's probably the one of the major myths that I'm constantly unpacking in my mm. life, like just on a daily basis. Yeah. Just that constant reinforcement of like this is what is attractive, this is what we have deemed attractive culturally. Yeah, and it, it's daily work. It's daily work to confront that and to find the strength to go mm. around it because you just have to go around it. And we just have like, I mean, and just just about everyone I work with. I work mostly with the LGBT population, specifically mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. I work with gay, bisexual, and straight men. And um, I, I see body image issues uh, in just about everyone. Right. Mm. And so, yeah, you're absolutely correct in, in saying that um, we have to, you know, deconstruct that and, and figure out, you know, what is actual beauty and what is, I mean, in what's not because we have a lot of people that are just plagued with insecurity mm. and thinking beautiful people too in fact mm-hmm. sometimes you know the people that we perceive objectively as very attractive actually have some of the most severe body image issues because of the fact that they're constantly looked at right. and constantly under the microscope and so they learn over time to see that as where their worth is mm-hmm. and if that's where you believe your worth is then as you age you're going to have a very hard time right. because you get less and less attention and I'm seeing that a lot with like older middle-aged men gay mm-hmm. men specifically that um, are feeling more and more invisible as they age and mm-hmm. get more and more um, body image issues around it and end up uh, finding themselves in, in addiction mm. with regards to drugs so, mm. wow yeah. Um, and yeah, and so instead of kind of working through that insecurity, instead of working through the body image issues that they have and the feeling of um, feeling less than and yeah. devalued as they age, they go to drugs uh, in order to um, numb themselves. Yeah. You know, and you don't have to use something extreme as like say meth or something like that. People do that now, and you know they abuse prescription medications and drink it down with Chardonnay. You know because we have this culture where you know. We, we run from feelings yeah. and uh, don't want to, you know, work through them and everything. And I feel like this is the time that we should really be challenging a lot of, like, what uh, we perceive as, you know, as acceptable in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we are doing that, but it's just, it, it's just, it's really hard to just watch people kind of, like, really struggle with that. People that I know are amazing people, yeah. are beautiful people, are good people, 
and definitely do not feel like they are because of all the messaging that they're getting. Right. Well, it's work. It's not like you conquer that and then the next day, no, you no. know, now you embark on the rest of your life having conquered these myths. Like it's a, yeah. we're confronted with them We didn't learn these daily, things, you know, day. overnight. Yeah. It, these, this is a product of like compounding years of getting all these messaging messages about, you know, our value and our worth, you know, and those things don't get unraveled overnight either. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's, it's a lot easier, uh, you know, to, to check out and to numb yourself rather than work through those things. Right. Yeah, it's a lot. This, um, mm -hmm. podcast exists largely as a, as a response to that impetus to cork those feelings, you mm -hmm. know, because I was, I, for so long, I just, I say processed internally, but I'm not a great internal processor. That's the point. Like, so I didn't process? I didn't really process. Like, I just kind of like, well, I guess I'm not a Christian, and I guess I don't believe these things, and I guess, I, you know, I figure out my place in this world, Michael W. Smith. Um, and I'm not going to sing it now, because I have a whole thing. <laughs> go, go ahead. But, but this was, like, I, I don't know, I just turned a point a couple years ago. I was just like there's so much in me that just has to come out and I can't, I don't, I didn't have, or honestly, I, I didn't feel like I had, um, a lot of the relationships in place to, to process so much of what I needed to process. Turns out I did like, turns out once I just started asking people to like, come talk to me about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I've had some of the best conversations of my life just right here in front of these microphones. And, um, but you just hit a point where it's just no good anymore. Like you can't continue to numb. You can't continue, or at least I did. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, Definitely. I, for me, that was, that was, I just, it was bubbling over and I needed to process it. And that's why I was like, let's just rip the bandaid off fully and like do this publicly and <laughs> make a podcast out of it. But, um, yeah, I'm so grateful that there are people like you who are there to help Hold, hold a hand, coach, train, guide, you know, as people go through this process. So, yay. <laughs> yay. Um, why did you want to become a sex therapist? Like, what was that? How did that journey? Mm, I think because I saw the lack of information, right? Mm -hmm. And we're so... Um, we think of the United States as being extremely progressive, right? Um, well, some of us do. But... Uh, <laughs> We you know, do we? <laughs> uh, you know, in some ways, Someone out there does. maybe, uh, but in, in a lot of other ways, we're not like right. in one of the ways is with regards to sex, you know, and, yeah. and the way we teach sex to children. Um, we're very, very Stork. uptight. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of founded by Puritans, right? Yeah. So, um, and so I, I see the need for sexuality education because so much can be connected to um, how repressed we end up being, not only sexually but emotionally, because we, we so often um, mold ourselves to other people's expectations rather than actually uh, beg the question of, you know, what do we need, what, do, what are our emotional and sexual needs and and then feel empowered enough to pursue those so mm. um i want to be part of the conversation that actually um tells people um that it's okay to be a sexual being and mm. that actually there's nothing more natural than that and 
and you know how do you then be a sexual being and operate in the world where you know you can do so ethically and you know what does ethical sexuality look like what does healthy sexuality look like these are things that i uh routinely you know uh teach uh not only in the um LGBT community, but the poly non-monogamy community, because there are definitely ways of going about things that, you know, have better results than others. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of people, especially people that have sexual abuse or have, um, you know, maybe a fundamentalist upbringing where they have kind of maybe um, a warped sense of their sexual identity and and have a lot of shame and and embarrassment around talking about it. You know, um, I try to empower these individuals to the extent you know, that I can and by, through education. And I, I want to, I want to continue to do that because I see a, a need and, and, uh, not just a need, but a, a desperate need, you know, and it's really connects to a lot of things. You know, we in the LGBT community have a huge problem with gay men using meth and going out, uh, and constantly relapsing. And, and it's, oftentimes, you know, sexually related. And yet there aren't hardly any rehab treatment centers in the country that routinely talk about sex or, or if they do, it's not positive, it's sex negative and which mm-hmm. just exacerbates the problem. Yeah. Cause when you talk to someone about sex and you're negative in your, in, in your language and you, you shame them even more, you, you don't tell them how to be a sexual person. Mm-hmm. You just shame them for being a sexual yeah, person. Right. And that is so damaging to a lot of people. And so one of the things I really love about, you know, while I do go into private practice next year, I'm currently working, um, and volunteering my time at Stepping Stone in San Diego, oh, yeah. which is an LGBT rehab center. And so it's one of the only places, one of the few places, I should say, in the country that actually re- uh, regularly addresses uh, sexuality concerns. Oh. And so I, I actually teach a class on it uh, twice a week. So. so, yeah, I'm really proud of that particular rehab center for you know having the courage to address this issue because they authentically want to get at the root of what is going on with the individual. Um, and they have seen so many gay men be, take, be taken out um, because of yeah. um, what Doug Braun Harvey calls the sex drug wink. And mm. Doug Braun Harvey is a famous sex therapist uh, in the, that has kind of like pioneered a lot of conversation about um, OCSB, which is out of control sexual behavior. And he uses that terminology largely in, in, as an alternative to, you know, the commonplace sex addiction um, terminology. Okay. Okay, So that's an interesting term for me. Okay. Well, backing up even a little bit further, like, uh, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm like probably your ideal client, right? Like I am the person who grew up (laughs) with all of that oppression, um, re, 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 repressive, repression, all of it, all of it, everything, everything, guilt, shame. Um, I, I mean, just even thinking about my own journey from that, from starting out in that to what you're talking about right now, which is sexual empowerment, like like mm-hmm. being okay, being a sexual being, and then like asking the question, like, what do I like? What do I want? Mm-hmm. Agency. Um, yeah, agency. Like God. that. I mean, I, the agency thing for me has only come up in very recent years, mm-hmm. like maybe two, maybe four years have I been like even considering that. Um, that is a, it's such a chasm. I mean, how, (laughs) I'm not, I I don't even know how to phrase the question I'm trying to ask, but like just that journey from, um, thinking that you're sinful or wrong or bad for even wanting sex to 
asking questions about like, well, who am I as a sexual being and mm-hmm. who do I want to partner with? And, and then get, getting into, you know, this, the area of specialty for you, like polyamory and non-monogamy, which is just like a total taboo mm-hmm. for anybody who grew up in my world. Like that's just not, I mean, which is ironic because so much of religion was not monogamous. <laughs> right, right. So much of the Bible is ago. not monogamous. Yeah, I mean, well, like I King James asking, had you know several hundred yeah. wives and concubines. I and asked stuff, that so question about yeah. Solomon in in, yeah. in Sunday school one Sunday, and I just remember being like, "Oh, okay, I'll never ask that question yeah, again." Yeah, there's That's not there's not a lot of biblical marriage in the Bible. No, it really isn't. <laughs> no, it's not the norm, and certainly no, nothing that looks like what. Um, conservative Christianity calls marriage today, you know, one man, one woman for life, you know, right. And, and, and romantic procreate love. like, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I don't even know if there's a question in there or not, but well, <laughs> I will clarify, you know, poly- polyamory as it is today, which polyamory uh, t- literally means multiple love. Right. So polyamory, uh, relationships are unlike when they were more, well, unlike a couple hundred years ago when it was like poly, uh, polygamy right which is really centered on the male sexuality Mm. it's not egalitarian at all whereas polyamory in today's context is about egalitarian connections it's about equal partnerships and it's no one's being subjugated for you know some one person's you know sexual desires and 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 needs women were property uh you know not too long ago Mm. and that's one of the reasons that you know things like um Polygamy is really looked down on by mm. a lot of polyamorous. Mm. So that um, makes sense. Yeah, and because they they are offended by the idea that you know one person's uh, should dictate and control another person sexually. Mm. You know that's offensive to a lot of people that identify as uh, polyamorous. Mm. And so I, I just want to make sure that that's thrown out there too, because a lot of people do confuse those two. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, even just thinking about the difference for me between my first long-term relationship and then the one I'm currently in, I've really only had two. I've dated short-term, but two long-term relationships. And for me in that first relationship, I was very much still of the mindset, like, me and this person are going to complete each other. We mm-hmm. are everything to each other. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't really need any other relationships anymore because I have my partner. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that was a recipe for you know, real fast crush and burn. Like we, our relationship ended really badly and it was unrealistic expectations. um, Yeah. Just wildly unrealistic expectations, especially from my end. As I look back, I can see where I was just like the, the expectations I put on him. And then the expectations that I was also trying to fulfill, like, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to be something to him that, you know, I couldn't be. So, I mean, I, I think I learned a lot of lessons just between those two relationships because and the thing, one of the things I love about the relationship I'm in now is we, it's, it's like, again, it kind of an inverse mirror image of, of that first relationship. We're so careful to, um, acknowledge that like we each need time with other people. Like there are you know, other, there are friendships and relationships in our lives that are going to fill us up in all kinds of different ways that we don't need to do for each other. Mm-hmm. Those expectations have been like dramatically lowered. And I've just, I mean, I've found how much happier I am so much happier than in that first relationship. You just constantly feel like you're failing when yeah. you're, when you're in, in that mindset of, 
I have to be everything to you and you have to be everything to me. And, <clears throat> so know. that's definitely like, that's yet another myth deconstruction that people have to do. They have to ask themselves, you know, is, is this a realistic expectation of a healthy relationship mm-hmm. that I expect one person to be everything to me emotionally, mm-hmm. sexually, and you know, in, in your case, spiritually, you know, it, it, in all different kinds of ways. Right. Yeah. Um, and is that, is that a fair and is it realistic? Right. Cause you not only, because it, 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 it goes the other way too. Like you also would have to be everything to that other person. You know, right. that's a lot of pressure. It's exhausting. It is. And it's just, it's unfair, you know, and, and we put so much expectation on people. And then when they, quote unquote fail us right Mm -hmm. then we think that there's something wrong with the relationship because maybe we find someone else attractive or we have sexual needs that are being unmet and the other person you know doesn't have the same sexual interests or whatever the case is you know we're we're not good at articulating our emotional needs we're not good at you know necessarily um communicating because the communication style is kind of conflict or whatever the case is you know um these are things that you know if people thought about more they would see the value in in getting needs met from different people mm-hmm. you know and then and that can look a lot of different ways you know it can it can be like just having you know maybe best friends that you talk to that you go out with once in a while that you vent to and talk to and, and really connect with that you're unable to connect with in such a way with your spouse and but a lot of people will think oh if I'm not able to connect like that with my spouse and there's something wrong mm. well it's not necessarily the case you know yeah. it, it just depends on your dynamic and what you know how you guys meet or don't meet your needs um and and so it if we're talking about from a sexual perspective, you know, there's a lot of people that have various, you know, have different sex drives too. Mm-hmm. And where one person is really high sex drive and the other person is real low sex drive. And then they go years of having unmet sexual needs because they're conforming to like one person's um, expectations. And then, you know, maybe there's some infidelity and, um, and then the relationship's devastated because, you know, you've betrayed me and, you know, and, you know, I mean, you just described my first relationship, yeah. like two AT. So, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. And so it's about like what I do with people, not just people that are polyamorous or in into non monogamy, but you know, monogamous couples as well. Like helping people kind of communicate and articulate their needs, because um, a lot of people don't do that very well. They expect their partner to be psychic. They they are not very good at communicating. They're not good at saying, you know, listen, this is kind of something I've been thinking about and, and because they're embarrassed by the conversation. Yeah, right. For sure. And that's a huge problem. And if you are embarrassed talking about what your needs are, what sexual or otherwise, then how can your partner ever adequately respond to that? Mm. And so it, you're not giving your partner, in addition to having unrealistic expectations, you're not giving your partner the opportunity to really respond to you in the way that you really need him or her to respond. Right. So, again, that's a lot of the work I do mm-hmm. with with people, you know, is kind of helping them realize what, first of all, what their needs are, and then second of all, how mm-hmm. to communicate those. Yeah. And one of the really things, well, one of the things I really love about, like, say, poly and non-monogamy relationship structures is that it will force you to articulate your needs. It will force you to communicate better because if you don't, you're going to go down a real dark 
right. alley, you know, with the relationship. Fast. Yeah, and a lot of people go into those relationship structures um, under, you know, in, if less than healthy reasons, you know, mm-hmm. if they're trying to save the relationship or they have to coerce one person, you know, they're like say they're coercing their wife to be really okay yeah. with having a three-way with another girl or something like that. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's not okay. You know, and you have to kind of um, get with someone and be able to communicate with, with another person that really has kind of the same interest. And if, if you are lucky enough to be with someone that is wanting to evolve and, 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 and kind of go on that sexual journey with you, then mm-hmm. that's great. That's a huge, a, amazing starting point, right? But then there's a, so much work beyond that, you know, getting to a place of security where mm-hmm. it's about playfulness. It's not about replacing someone. It's not about, you know, upping, uh, you know, upgrading someone because, um, you know, feelings of insecurity frequently come up, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And then they think, okay, well, I'm insecure, so... I can, you know, it's, it's obviously not an arrangement that works for me, but insecurity is very normal. And so when people feel insecure, that's a red flag that there's some communication that needs mm-hmm. to happen, that there's, there's something that needs to be addressed because your needs are not being met. Right. That can be something as simple as going on a date night. If you feel like you're, if you do feel like you're replaceable, being able to sit down with your partner and say, listen, this is what's coming up for me. And if we're going to continue with this, you know, relationship structure then you know i i need i need this from you and i i need to be able to i need to feel important and so the question then becomes well how do you feel important you know and so it really forces your love language exactly (laughs) you know it's really you know a lot of work because but what i love about it is that it forces you to do that work right because so many people become complicit in their relationships and they they're so place it that they they don't challenge you know their insecurities they don't try to get at the root of why they feel insecure you know and it could be you know a lot of different reasons you know it's different for everyone yeah there's nothing in our in the way the world is set up there's nothing in the construct that compels you to do this work we whether you are come from a fundamentalist background or not you still grow up in a world where one man one woman is the standard bear, like that's the standard. You and lock it in and you suffer. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's, exactly. that's, that's the butt of every comedian's joke about every marriage. Every sitcom that's ever every been on sitcom, television. Yeah. Every rom- you know, romantic comedy, it's all geared toward making us think that this is the construct. This is the right thing. Right. Um, this is what it looks like. And if you does, if your relationship doesn't look like that, then something is wrong with you or your partner or your relationship. Mm-hmm. But so, also that it's okay to be miserable. Yeah. Until, because eventually when you're like 65, 70, it's all going to become clear. Like you've been miserable all this time, <laughs> but it was worth it because now you made it to like this weird magical wow. point where you're so glad you stuck it out. Longevity, I think, is one of these wow. myths that we really have for like the value of relationship mm-hmm. we put in. Yep. Longevity. The longer you can stick it out, the better relationship you It's have. about enduring Sorry, suffering rather than, in, you know, living life to the fullest right. in some ways. Sorry, and I cut you off. No. No, this is, this is what we do. We can't connect. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, well, I was just going to say, like, I've spent a large percentage of my life in some sort of relationship counseling on and off, <laughs> give or take, depending on the in, year. In counseling? In counseling, yeah. yeah. In either my own counseling or in relationship counseling with somebody else. And the interesting minds, mind shift mindset shift for me has been now like 
the way that I approach conflict in a relationship, I always come into conflict now from a perspective of like, I want you to win hmm. you person that I'm in conflict with. Like I'm <laughs> in this conflict cause I want us to win. And like, I want to figure out how to help you win. So mm. like, if I can figure out in this conversation, like what I can, what information I can provide for you, that's like, Hey, here's how you can win here, buddy. You know, mm-hmm. like here's what I, here's what I, I think I need. And here's what I think happened for me. And here's where I think that went wrong. And like, here's how I think, here's how I think we can win. But then you hit a very vulnerable point because once you have that information of like, here's how you can win. I think the magic trick then for people is you have to take that and hand it to someone and say, here is how you can win because then the risk is they can go, nah, no thanks. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to win. That's too much. And we have this longevity idea that we're very attached to and we want to belong and we want to stay and we want to be, we, we want to save those relationships, you know? Mm. Um, so I think that's a scary asking for what you need, I think is just a scary proposition for people. Well, especially, I mean, if you do think of like that exchange as like a win-lose kind of scenario. Yeah, right. right? Because ultimately, like when two people come together or however many um, come together to talk about what their needs are, there's really... I mean, everyone can be the winner right. if they can communicate and articulate what they actually right. need. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's good to have the attitude that, you know, maybe we can both win, mm-hmm. you know, and because we're both, we're not here to, you know, outdo each other. We're here to like figure each other out right. and figure out right. what we need from each other. So that way we can be happy and we can have both of our needs met and we can go about that this relationship in a way that really really adds value yeah you know and a lot of times people don't think of it like that they think about you know how do i um how do i keep this person keep i think that's it it's that fear that is under it because as long as because because you know the moment i lose this person it says not only something about me but then i'm alone in the world and and that's scary and you know and so there's a lot of fear Mm -hmm. and it's fear-based you know and the and being able to be in some kind of relationship structure where it's not fear-based is is so empowering Mm -hmm. it's because it's genuinely about, you know, what, how do we uplift each other? Right. How do we both evolve? Yeah. And I think that that is where relationships are moving. Um, and I think, you know, egalitarian relationships that put a lot of emphasis on not possessing another person, but have invested interest in uplifting that person mm-hmm. is the most moral kind of relationship yeah. a person can be in and that is where we're headed I wholeheartedly and, agree and, and I think you're going to see more of that uh, in the future whether it's monogamous or non-monogamous or polyamorous I think that is where we're headed mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons why you know that I, I work with the, the, those demographics yeah. you know it takes people doing what we're doing right now, like t- taking apart that construct yeah. to even like prod people to imagine what it would be like without that construct. Because other, because I mean, I never would have, if I hadn't been gay, I never would have imagined like anything beyond, Oh, I just have to find my wife and then that's our life together. Like, yeah. so if you're not confronted with the fact that the construct might not be, um, 
it might not be God ordained. It might not be the best way. Mm-hmm. It might not even be right. Like yeah. for you, it might not even be what's right. Then, yeah, you have to hear you have to hear people pushing against that and hear it like crack and creak and be like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. there's something on the other side of this thing. Like I can hear it through this little crevice that you just opened for me. Mm-hmm. Like there's something beautiful happening over here, and that's that's I mean that's where I'm at. That's what's been happening yeah. for me. And like I said, even in our conversation over coffee a couple weeks ago, like I was just like, oh, like there's some stuff you said that was like super enlightening for me. Um, just even in terms of okay, like, okay, talking about. Um, pol- well, non non monogamy. Let's talk about mm-hmm. that specifically because you talked about how for for a lot of people, um, being in a non monogamous relationship and like can actually increase your physical affection for your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Can you can you talk about that a little bit because that was something that I thought was really interesting the way you presented that. Yeah, well, let me start off by saying, um, you know, a lot of people think, okay, well, if if I if I'm with my husband or wife or whatever the case may be, um, and I have mm, sexual desire for someone else, that um, I'm somehow betraying something that mm-hmm. our connection. I'm somehow, you know violating our bond and what that really comes from is this idea of purity that we placed around women Mm. um especially when women were perceived as property Mm. we controlled women's sexuality we had that on lockdown for a long period of time and it wasn't until you know approximately the renaissance area that we instead of giving women the same liberties that men had always had we slapped the same restrictions onto men mm. and said here's the ideal monogamy you make it work right and this is a healthy relationship this is what it should look like instead of actually ever doing any kind of education around you know what is healthy sexuality right or how to, what is healthy sexual expression and we we instead uh, held in virtue this idea of possession over each other. And so I think that that still persists to today. And so we think of, you know, what is really sacred about what is, uh, what we cherish in our relationship. It's always comes down to like our genitals, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so my, my, my viewpoint on that is, well, what's sacred about like, say my relationship with my husband has nothing to do with our genitalia or, or how we use it. Right. It has to do with the fact that I found someone to hold my hand through life, mm. to go through, to help me take care of, you know, my mother with Alzheimer's and to hold my hand through the ups and downs of life. To me, that is sacred. Mm. Right. That's something that will never be replaced by anyone, no matter how attractive they are, no matter any, anything that that's irreplaceable. That is that is something I cherish, yeah. right? And so a lot of times when I hear people talk about in their objection to non-monogamy or polyamory has to do with, well, what makes our relationship special? Well, just that. Right. Having someone... <laughs> it's it's easy to find attractive people. It's easy to... You know, at least people you find attractive and, and it's easy to get laid. It's not easy to find someone to walk through life with. Yeah. It's someone that you know has your back. Mm-hmm. That is sacred. And yeah. that's my attitude towards it. So once I kind of saw it like that, that allowed me to to then be more sexually playful. And, and we have a secure attachment with each other. So And because we have that attitude, we're able to, to view sex in a playful way. So it's mm-hmm. not about upgrading my husband because I have no interest in that. Right. 
It's not about replacing. It's just about making, it's about having fun with our sexuality. Mm-hmm. And one of the main motivations, not just f- for women, but especially for men, is novelty. And, and people can do that a variety of ways. And maybe, maybe they're kinky, maybe they have a fetish, and so they keep it spicy that way. Mm-hmm. But for other people... Maybe they're on bad-dragon.net, <laughs> <laughs> which was a website that came uh, up during our last sex uh, <laughs> T-Rex penises (laughs) for your pleasure. Why don't you just go ahead and send them that jingle? I'm sure that'll be (laughs) They'll love it. That'll Um, be their commercial. I think I have a cat that's stuck in the closet. Oh. I'm going to let him out real quick. That's fine. Go do that. I'm like hearing the closet door and I'm like, Jack. Um, But another way people approach like sexual novelty, right, is by... Um, being able to introduce, like, say, a third variable, you know, or another couple into yeah. the relationship and be able to um, take their playful, you know, attitude towards sex and be able to have someone come in and, and kind of enhance it, you yeah. know, and, and have fun with it and stuff. Because um, I think what I described to you over coffee um, was, you know, it doesn't matter how amazing the relationship is. When we first start to get to know someone, you know, our our brains are kind of flooded with oxytocin, you know, the bonding agent. And, you know, that naturally diminishes over time, you know, and it doesn't, again, it doesn't matter how amazing that relationship is. Um, and when the person becomes kind of like your best friend, right, when the person becomes like this this confidant, it, it, it can be kind of difficult for some people to see them in a sexual light because, you know, you've, you've done everything with them and yeah. you, you, you know, you've had sex with them thousands of times and, or, yeah. and, uh, it doesn't take away from the fact that they're, you know, amazing people to you. It doesn't take away from the fact that they're still interesting, that they're still attractive. You know, it, it just, it just means that, you know, that we appreciate differences. And honestly, it wasn't until I saw my husband with another person in, in a safe context mm-hmm. where we are allowed to be sexually playful that it was like uh, something clicked in my head. It was like, oh, I remember him being a sexual being. I am mm-hmm. seeing him with someone and it's turning me on <laughs> to an extreme. Yeah. And, and to me... Um, and, and you do get that rush of oxytocin again, only if you, I think it it bonds you closer to your partner when it's about play. Yeah. Right. And so the next day, a lot of times that, you know, if me and my husband have a three with someone that we like, and we have our whole vetting system for that, um, and boundaries and, you know, and for ourselves and, uh, the vast majority of trying, the vast majority of the time, I'm I'm very you know horny the next day for him, and I want to have sex one on one, and and that's because it it's a it, it just does wonders for our libido because not only do we get that rush of oxytocin, but um, we're reminded that each other are sexual beings, and and it's just really hot and it's really erotic, and uh, not only is it erotic, but then it's intimate at the same time, and mm. to me, that's the best sex is sex that intertwines. Uh, eroticism with with uh, intimacy and a lot of times in long-term relationships we get into this habit where it's just about intimacy and then we long for eroticism and a lot of single people have nothing but eroticism but they long for intimacy Mm -hmm. and so it becomes this like battle of like balance right you know to what extent can you get both of those and i think that people that are able to navigate poly non-monogamy relationships uh and do it well 
um, get both of those very easily, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. So Wow. I'm seriously, like, so happy that you're talking about this because, <laughs> again, it's like, if you don't hear any, if you don't hear this explained in any other terms other than, like, well, the messages that we get, you know, oh, you, he cheated on me, or, like... Right. You yeah, want to, like, it's we talked earlier, yeah. like, oh, you want to be with somebody else. I'm not good enough for you. All of that stuff, that construct, again, this thing that we think we have to fit into. Well, like, if we don't have an example, then how are we ever supposed to know that there might be something good on the other side of that? Yeah. And let me be clear, though. When you are in a poly and, um, or nominized relationship, you can definitely betray the person. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. A lot of people think, oh, you can just do whatever you want. That's still not the case. Right. It's still not the case. You, there's some real um, negotiation that goes on right yeah there not only is there negotiation but there's transparency too Mm. and if you want you're communicating you're articulating your needs to someone else um you have to initially kind of establish some boundaries and and i mean not everyone there's radical anarchists for example um that are not really well they're into boundaries but they're not into like placing rules over people because they view that those rules are a form of possession which Mm -hmm. is Mm. you know a, a perspective which i've value and um but you know there are definitely ways when you are if you just feel like okay we can have an initial conversation about this and now that i have the green light i can go on the dl no that's shady right you're violating the person's trust the people need to feel like you're reliable they need to know i mean a lot of people some people don't have a don't ask don't tell policy but uh other people have a more transparent policy and and honestly i do lean in that direction where i believe transparency is good if they want to know um some people i guess can make it work just fine if they don't have like uh, you know, say, for example, if they do have a don't ask, don't tell policy. But, you know, um, I'm more of a communicator, and I think that that's a really good way to go about, you know, um, sharing with with your partner or partners, as it may be the case, um, you know, who you are and what your needs are. Right. And I think that you give people the opportunity to understand you in a deeper way when you're more transparent. And so... Yeah. Um, a lot of times when people ask me about, well, what does healthy sexuality look like? You know, you know, I, I refer them to kind of these six principles of that I teach in therapy and also the world health organization has Mm -hmm. come down with. And, you know, those six principles, um, are consent, non-exploitation, honesty, mutual pleasure, STI protection and shared values. Mm -hmm. And so, can we run through those again? Yeah. So consent. <laughs> Once more for the people. Anyway. I know. I, lo- I love that there's an ethic to this. So yeah. Consent. So consent absolutely has to be an element to, to an egalitarian relationship. Because mm-hmm. when you, you know, and it's a lot of things, you know, consent something that a lot of people have to learn because, you know, when a woman is passed out right. on the couch, you know. Uh, that's not consensual, right. you know, and it's, it's sad to, that we have to explain that to people, but some mm-hmm. people need that explained. But it, consent seems straightforward, but it seems to be confusing for some. Um, but it's, you know, getting the yes, you know, from someone. Yeah. having And some people have a very hard time with that, and, and that's a skill, you know, sometimes that people need to learn. Um, and then non-exploitation is just that, you know. Um, we have age requirements for relationships for very good reasons Mm -hmm. because it is exploitative, Mm. you know, to prey on people that are younger um, and um, that can't consent. People, and even if they do, you know, do they have the emotional maturity to, you know? And so 
non-exploitation is huge. Um, and because I work with a lot with people in recovery, um, and in active addiction, um, you know, a lot of these people have had, um, been exploited and, and don't know what healthy boundaries look like, don't know what healthy consensual relationships look like. And so these are definitely things that I have to help break down for people and mm. help them with the skills room. Yeah. And then honesty. So part of being honest is being transparent. Right. So whether you're in a monogamous relationship or a polyamorous relationship, uh, being honest gives the, your, lets your partner know um, that you're trustworthy, that you are someone to be relied on. And you can certainly betray that trust and you can certainly, um, you know, show yourself to be unreliable and and that can be a very destabilizing thing, Mm -hmm. you know? And so people need to feel like they can trust you. Trust is huge. And how you get there is honesty. Right. And Mm so, um, honesty among other things, but honesty is huge. And, uh, so mutual pleasure and, um, Mutual pleasure is huge, too, because so often people feel like, okay, I need to cater to that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of the reasons that, um, you know, polyg- polygamy is negatively viewed by polyamorous yeah. is because it's not necessarily, it's not about, uh, you know, mutual pleasure. It's about serving the the male. The sexuality revolves around the male yeah. uh, right. gratification. Yeah, especially and, that biblical polygamy that we were talking about right. earlier. Yeah, exactly. Where, like, Solomon I, can just decide which one of his 600 wives he Exactly. That, that has nothing to do with the woman's sexual satisfaction. No. You know, the, no one cared. I mean, in that kind of arrangement, you know, there's no care to, towards women's sexuality. Yeah. Um, because that's it from an era where they were property. You know? So, um, so in addition to mutual pleasure, STI protection and sexual reproduction, um, options for women, you know, so birth control, being able to, you know, control and have autonomy over their own body and whether or not they, you know, they, they're, they, you know, want to have children or don't they are able to control that you know and and that allows a lot of women to be able to be their full sexual selves because they have control Mm -hmm. and and so that's that's a huge debate that's going on right now um and 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 still you know in 2018 yeah that that is that 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 we have those like just rooms full of men white men who are white straight men who are making these Mm -hmm. decisions that do affect a woman's ability to what? Did, how did you just put it to have autonomy over her own sexuality? Right? Yes, exactly. Her own reproductive system and her own right. n- needs, and because it, it but is that goes from everything to like, do I want to have fun tonight? Right, right. Like that's yeah. a question a woman like. Do I want to have a baby? Yeah, yeah. it's like has can't answer if someone is telling her that no, you can't have access to you absolutely SCR protection or birth control or whatever. Like yeah. you limit a woman's options by not giving her all of the reproductive can I just um, say fuck that yeah <laughs> it's the first time like the last couple of weeks I've been real like cognizant of my gratitude for my IUD which is a little mm, bit yeah. like more than I want to think about it really but I'm like well I'm glad I made that choice because yeah. like well I'm covered for a while so wow. great but yeah it's a yeah Agency again, a nice thing to have. It's a good thing to it's have. It's just right? nice. We like it. Yeah. It's great when you can get it, and, and the, tough when they try to take it away. Yeah, it's it's definitely a dimension of you know 
of getting people on a, an egalitarian level, right? Mm-hmm. When Absolutely. people have agency over their own bodies to be able to control when and when not to have children and when and when not to receive pleasure. And so, um, and it can be a limiting factor if mm-hmm. a woman feels like she doesn't, like she can't, you know, and that, that impacts a woman's sexuality. Of course. And for so long, we've been so afraid of women's sexuality. <laughs> you know, it's this well, dangerous thing. Women are dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's the same can be true for like gay men you know this is this is saying that you know um you know if you have bareback sex then maybe you should be on prep right mm-hmm. and um and be with people that are okay with having bareback sex rather than co- being coercive you know using condoms uh when when that's something that you you know, have had a conversation with someone else and you both agree to, right? And so having access to those things is, is huge, right? Yeah. And that kind of relates to the last principle, which is shared values. Mm-hmm. And so shared values is the kind of the last principle that I have of healthy sexuality. And this doesn't always mean that, you know, if you're a Democrat, you need to only have sex with other Democrats. You know? <laughs> it means... Not even a log cabin yeah. Republican. <laughs> you know, it just means that you are on the same page. So if you're into BDSM, that you, you know, you don't necessarily have to coerce someone else to be right. into BDSM as well. You know, if you're polyamorous, that you don't have to coerce someone to be polyamorous as well. Yeah. You are, you have shared values. And so because I work with people and, and that are struggling with addiction um, to, to drugs, you know, I have to really emphasize that for them. You know, not only does share values means that, but it also means, you know, being with someone that respects their sobriety because so often they find themselves in situations with people that just wave a bag in their face mm. or put drugs out in their face. You know, and those are people that have no respect for them. Right. They have yeah. no respect for yeah. their sobriety. They have no respect for their own wellness. Right. And yet they're engaging in sexual play with them you yeah know? and and it, but it only it ends up not being about play it's about yeah. something else it's this sexuality like it's twisted wow. right and it, because it's exploitative it's it relies on that person's you know addictive state in order to you know to get off and it, it, it can be very shady sex can be a lot of yeah. dark things yeah. but but i do try to instill in, in people that it can also be about all these amazing things too it can also be playful it can also be yeah. exciting and erotic and it can intertwine eroticism and intimacy and so when people ask me what healthy sexuality is you know you know regardless of what it looks like you know if you have those six principles in place if you have if you're good on those right it's healthy. Yeah. You know, you're not hurting anyone. You're being respectful. You're going about it ethically. That is how you go about being a sexual being ethically. And to whatever else you're into, you know, if you can implement those six principles, uh, <laughs> you know, more power to you. It's right? so... I'm obsessed with these six things. Yeah, like, that's a good so, six things. So we need good. a mug. It's we need, like, like, a coffee cup. It should be on a mug, actually. <laughs> Hello. That's going. That'll be it's in done. the... In okay. The, human store thing um, we haven't talked about yet <laughs> yeah cool well maybe, maybe we'll, we'll talk about it on whatever i just i'm obsessed with the fact that this is a more ethical and moral approach to sex than anything i got in my fundamentalist religious upbringing mm-hmm. i mean the reason like like you said sex can be dark and and scary and bad for people is because we don't talk about this stuff yeah. and yeah. it's mostly in my experience and the people i know it's mostly folks who, on the outside, like, have this veneer of morality mm-hmm. and, like, adhere mm-hmm. to the Ten Commandments and adhere to biblical inerrancy and those kinds of things. Like, they have the dark, fucked-up sex lives that mm-hmm. are 
damaging to them and to other people. And they just, it, that's like, that's their, the thing in there. It was me. That was me for so long. Like, I mean, I, I wasn't sexually active until I was 28, but, but that was still, I still had this inner, like, you know, thought life and like my porn addictions and things like that, that were mm. so like damaging and dark because I wasn't able to talk about it. I didn't have these six principles to like filter anything through. Mm. Yeah. All I knew was that I can't, I like, I have these urges and I can't tell anybody. Like it, it can manifest in all kinds of toxic ways because when you go prolonged periods of time with unmet emotional or sexual needs, right? Um, that can really be toxic to the individual. Everything becomes yeah, like and people act out, apologized, right? And they go to another. They go to an extreme that's not only unhealthy, but it's just um, un, unmanageable, right? In their own lives, and that's yeah. where we kind of get into out of control sexual behavior sometimes mm. and people learn to, you know, cope and with sexual It's so interesting like how it all I mean I think it I just keep circling back in my head to this whole idea of like my switching like the ethic that we keep dancing around is this idea of like my goal is not to keep but to enable thriving, right? Mm. Like my goal is not to keep you but to help you thrive, right? Yeah. Just in general. And but I so. feel like so much of I mean, I have literal notes. This came up a lot this week because that bullshit article that has been popping up on everybody's Facebook page. It got shared in the huddle this week. That's that one about how men like yeah. uh, debt-free women with no tattoos. Oh <laughs> like, I saw that. Debt-free virgins with no, so virgins with no tattoos. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't have any debt kids. So cool. <laughs> Sorry about everything else. Got the tattoos. Um, whoops. <laughs> but... Um, as that was circling, like that got shared with me a couple of times, a couple of different venues. And I was like, look, I've got these journals. I have literal notes in my journals where I was writing about how to be submissive biblically, like how to be good. And one of the, one of the points is literally never deny him sex because I'm angry or tired or not in the mood, which undermines mutual pleasure number one well Well, number one number four it it, it violates a bunch of them all of them right (laughs) and so but then again like even that even that whole ideology is structured around this idea of keeping this particular story we've got to keep this you know you gotta keep it the fucking construct you gotta keep it you gotta keep it i'm getting so fired up and if you were to just take that lens of like how do we enable thriving instead of how do we enable keeping and apply it to that the whole thing crumbles like you can't justify never deny sex if you're not in the mood if your goal is to help people thrive like there is no justification Mm. for it if what you want to do is help people thrive but if what you want to do is keep some sort of construct some sort of relationship some sort of something all of a sudden you get the justification for these bullshit ideas yeah but yeah, I literally have that in my journal. Never deny him sex because I'm angry or tired or not in the mood. <laughs> like, but you see, like all the myth deconstruction that we have to do. So much. So it doesn't just limit. It's not. Well, there's a large part of it that's dogmatic based, mm-hmm. but and patriarchy based. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, after kind of rethinking what my you know ideology messaging was then I you know with regards to religion at least right. you know it kind of got me thinking about a lot of other things and challenging other things and I think once you become comfortable challenging those things it really does empower you in a way to figure out well what actually does work for you yeah. and what doesn't right because you have the 
the agency to figure that out for yourself. And right. you have the agency to be an ethical, good person while figuring that out yourself. Mm. You know, and being an ethical, good person is not contingent on being a uh, obedient person. Right. You know, you know, and so and a lot of people seem yeah. to think that it that it yeah. does, right? Because <laughs> that's how we're groomed, yeah. especially people that are raised in very fundamentalist households. Right. Tell right? the right story. Yeah, absolutely. You need to be obedient and never challenge authority. And you know, there's a reason those Trust things are in place. Obey. Yeah. yeah, we sing songs about it growing up. Yeah. And you make you make not thinking a virtue by mm-hmm. saying, you know, oh well, I, it's faith, you know, and you know, just have to have faith, and you know, that's. Which is it, why we are in the pl- not to get political. I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, this is this is why America is you what don't? it is today. Yeah. I mean, I do. Yeah. I always do. I mean, come on. But yeah, yeah. Not thinking is a virtue. Yeah, and that's really what it comes mm. down to. And I think that at a young age, I just I could never get behind any kind of higher power that would be that immoral. Yeah. Yeah. To burn a child or burn yeah. someone in hell for eternity yeah. for thinking critically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't accept that as a, as a appropriate supreme being. I see that as a reflection of our worst attributes in, as human beings. It's human, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a mirror yeah, to us totally. at yeah. where we were at a certain point. And I yeah. think the reason that our compassion and our perception of deity uh, or deities or whatever um, evolves over time yeah. isn't because of moral decay but just the opposite because we are becoming more compassionate mm-hmm. and it doesn't yeah. always feel like that but it, we certainly are and yeah. I feel like that's an inspiring thing you know it's a new thing it's mm-hmm. a new thing to to want to grow up with someone for no other reason than the fact that you love them yeah right you know, really new where, yeah it, that's that's uh, you know, and that's that has opened the door then to all types of love, Absolutely. right? To LG, you know, to people in the LGBT community, to women that don't have to be in relationships because they don't, they have no way of making a living otherwise, mm. or they have mm-hmm. you know little resources otherwise. You know, um, we're empowering people and putting people on a more equal stage right. to where we can then come together and say. I want to be with you and I want to grow up with you for no other reason than the fact that I admire and respect and love you. Mm-hmm. That is morality to me. That is yeah. a moral and uplifting, yep. you know? And that this is the time and place in, in the world that that has really been an open door for right. that, you know? And it really is so new. Like, it's yeah. the last 50 years exactly. in, like, the history of, of humankind yeah. before then. And then, like, the last 50 years, we've got this paradigm shift. And then we wonder why all of our resources about, like, how to do traditional marriage aren't sufficient anymore. Exactly. Like, why are these crumbling? We're like, Well, we've undermined the why. The why is yeah. completely different than it was at literally any point in history up until this point, I think it's fascinating. And it's, I love hearing you talk about it because I think it's, I'm always baffled that more people aren't talking about this, no. aren't talking about that why and, and how the why isn't, it's, there is a why, but it's a different why than what we had before, you know, like it's yeah. a, it's a whole new why and we have to build something new around it. Um, so I love, I love that you're talking about that. Thanks. I love it. It's so good. I'm just so grateful that you took the time to talk to us today. I, I want I want to have you back. Yeah. yeah. And you've already said you'll come yeah, back, so thank you. Um, because 
and I want to wrap this one up just because I feel like there's already so much contained in <laughs> yeah. whatever so how, an hour that we've been talking that is going to be a lot for people, for people. To, to process. Um, so listeners, go to the heathen huddle. Like let's let's huddle talk up. about this stuff. Huddle up heathens. Huddle up heathens. <laughs> and uh, let's let's talk about some of this stuff. I'm I, I'm I'm obsessed with these this the ethics the six uh, principles you have here. There's, um, there's just going to be some good stuff that comes out of this. And let's, like, definitely revisit it and talk about what comes next. You next guys are time. a lot of fun, so I'll, I'll be on whenever you guys want. <laughs> Love Thank it. you. I'm so excited. Is there anything uh, you want to plug your practice, anywhere people can find you online, anything well, like that? Well, I'll be out of San Diego. Um, I'm still trying to determine what an appropriate title would be for my practice. <laughs> I don't know that I would necessarily want to name it, you know, James Johansson Incorporated. Right. Some, you, know, so, there you, go. you want some emails? We can have them sent suggestions yeah, yeah. if you want. Um, but uh, I still have to think about, you know, what, because, you know, I'm I'm a baby sex therapist right now. So, <laughs> but, uh, don't call it I that. Know, there's some no, to take that. <laughs> okay, never mind. Never definitely mind. don't call it that. You're a, you're yeah. a, a No, I definitely won't be calling it that. <laughs> you're new. But there's a lot of different kinds Green. of like titles that I could be uh, thinking about. So I don't, yeah. I don't know yet, but, uh, but maybe, you know, next year right know, on. I'll come in and plug it. Yeah. Um, perfect. So fantastic. Um, well, and if you're, if you're willing and open to it, we'd love to add you to the secret Facebook group and, yeah, and let people sure. throw questions your way if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you very much. That's, yeah, that's my pleasure. awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up this sex episode. So, uh, heathens, you got some homework, it sounds like. Go out there and help each other thrive. Yeah. Do that. Mm-hmm. That's so good. It's so good. Thanks for listening to Heathen. We're here every week. And in the meantime, if you miss us, you can find us in the following ways. Follow at Heathen Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us an email at askheathen at gmail.com, especially if you have feedback or ideas for future episodes. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and that helps other people find Heathen. And if you'd like to contribute to this community for people who need a soft place to land as they move away from bad religion, you can support Heathen on Patreon at patreon.com slash heathen podcast well thank you for your support with exclusive bonus content which you know is going to be freaking awesome wherever you find yourself in this space of godless spirituality spiritual godlessness or anywhere in between you're not alone we're glad you're here here's to the heathens